Finance Insider, a premium edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. Today's host is Senior Editor Chris Sheridan. A couple weeks back, we interviewed George Friedman about his new book, The Storm Before the Calm, and part of that book, we discussed technocracy and the role of technocracy in society. It was a fascinating discussion, and after we had him on, a number of you actually emailed me in saying, hey, you need to talk to the foremost expert on this subject. And that person is Patrick Wood. He's the author of multiple books on technocracy and its origins, including his most recent called Technocracy Rising, The Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. Patrick, thank you for joining us on the show today. Hey, Chris. Really good to be here. Thank you. I'm excited to dive into this really fascinating subject and especially to shed some light on some of the things that we see taking place today, especially in light of the coronavirus. But let's start with just some of the basics. What is technocracy and how do you describe it? Well, here's where it came from. Back in 1932, a long time ago, almost 100 years, there was a group of scientists and engineers at Columbia University during the heat of the Great Depression who decided they would create a brand new economic model, a new system that would replace capitalism and free enterprise. They called it technocracy. And here's how they defined themselves in 1938 from one of their own official magazines. This is a direct quote from the magazine. Technocracy is the science of social engineering, the scientific operation of the entire social mechanism to produce and distribute goods and services to the entire population. And that was a nutshell of the whole thing. They proposed to do away with capitalism and free enterprise altogether and institute the system of control over resources and production and distribution where they would control all, both ends of the economic production model. Not only would they control the resources, but they would tell manufacturers what they're allowed to make, and then they would tell consumers what they're allowed to consume, and thereby they would, quote-unquote, balance the load on Mother Earth kind of limit how much resources were extracted from the earth and stuff. It was kind of a crackpot utopian dream back then. And it was ultimately rejected as um, capitalism didn't die for one thing. And World War II brought it back. And by the end of the 40s, everybody pretty much forgot about technocracy, except for a few hardcore holdovers. But that's where it started. And maybe we'll get into how it moved forward from there before our conversation is done here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is this similar in some ways to communism? Because it sounds like you're controlling all the means of production and consumption in society. That, that sounds very similar to communism. Is it similar to or how is it different from that? Well, actually, there's quite a few differences between technocracy and communism. And I wrote an article. It happens to be on my website. It's called Technocracy Versus Communism, Socialism, and Fascism. And the idea that I had was to kind of go through, brainstorm with a couple of people about the differentiators, the markers, and so on between these various systems. And what I found back in that day, in the 30s, technocrats and communists hated each other. They were at war in the media. They were at war in debates and stuff they had when they were unfortunate to meet uh, in person. And by and large, if you were to call a technocrat, a hardcore technocrat back in those days, a communist, you'd probably get in a fistfight pretty quickly. There was that much antipathy. And the reason was, is that the technocrats believed that the communist ideology was still using a price-based economic system. And they said, that is absolutely anathema. We refuse that. And what they proposed 
was using an energy-based economic system. And this uh, was a substantial difference, and it still is a difference today. And there's a lot of subtleties to this, but I'll give you, I'll give you a couple of ideas. I'm just looking at my list right here, trying to maybe pick out one or two that uh, you know, might make some sense here. Um, here's, here's one differentiation. A technocracy despises capitalism uh, altogether. Uh, however, communism and socialism, Marx believed that capitalism was a necessary step to communism. Uh, he wrote that. And fascism viewed capitalism as the third way between whatever was before and, and communism. Technocrats were apolitical. They, they didn't really, uh, they hated politicians, actually. They didn't want anything to do with them. So there wasn't a left or right, Republican, liberal, whatever. Communism, socialism is mostly viewed as left-wing. And in fascism, it's mostly viewed as conservative uh, or right-wing. Technocracy originally was racially agnostic. Interestingly, Stalin condemned anti-Semitism, and fascism tends towards uh, anti-Semitism and racism. So, you know, there's lots of differences. Like I listed about 25 different things that, that I discovered that were uh, distinctive between them. The most telling thing is Zbigniew Brzezinski, who wrote the book Between Two Ages in about 1968, um, he said that uh, Marxism and communism were uh, a stepping stone to what he called the, the end game, the technotronic era. That was his word that he used for technocracy. And uh, he wasn't a Marxist himself. He wasn't a communist, but a lot of people thought maybe he was, but he wasn't. And he said the only thing, just from a pragmatic point of view, is that communism is a necessary stepping stone to get to the final stage, which is the technotronic era. And I think he had reasons for that. He's, of course, we may never know for sure because he died a year and, what, a, year and a half ago. But um, anyway, there are some significant differences. And even today, communism and uh, technocrat, technocracy really don't mix. And there's, there's no love lost between a real technocrat and the communist, uh, you know, Marxist communist like Bernie Sanders, for instance. Okay, so in that sense, it sounds like technocracy is a system in its own right. It is, and the, the commonality is it's autocratic, obviously. It, they originally, the original technocrats wanted to completely disband the entire government infrastructure. They wanted to get rid of Congress. They wanted to get rid of the Office of the President. They wanted to get rid of this, even the Supreme Court. They modeled an organization chart, an org chart, as you'd call it in the corporate world, um, where there was like the head poobah, you know, that was a head engineer over the whole country, and then they had people that would be appointed over the various uh, service sectors, as they call them, like the military and foreign affairs and the health system and so on within the country. But they, none of them were, were to be elected whatsoever. So they didn't want anything to do with the Constitution, obviously, either. That would have been uh, just discarded immediately. That's very radical in today's thinking because, you know, even around the world, the word democracy brings up, well, don't we get to say, have a say about this? And they didn't want anybody to have a say about anything. They just said, look, we know what's right. We're the scientists and engineers. We just figured out according to formula. And since it's right, well, you should just do it. And with a smile on your face. Well, some people didn't want to have a smile on their face. So, <laughs> <laughs> so is technocracy operating Today, is it something that is being implemented or pursued by various groups or governments around the world, or has it been abandoned? Nope. It's absolutely still in play. And the reason it's still in play is that the name was changed 
along the way. And now today we know it as sustainable development. And of course, anybody who's heard that term may not know that that originates with the United Nations. And the United Nations is dedicated to implementing sustainable development everywhere on the planet. And they've come a long ways from doing that. How they got this message, how they were force-fed or spoon-fed this message, was at the hands of a group that was created back in 1973 by Brzezinski, by the way, and David Rockefeller. It was called the Trilateral Commission. And the first thing that they said they were going to do as an organization was to create a new international economic order. And over the next several years, from 73 on, they began to feed this doctrine to the United Nations, as, and it ultimately became known as uh, sustainable development. It was codified in 1992 as Agenda 21. And uh, the doctrine for Agenda 21, the policy points, were delivered to the United Nations by a lady in Europe by the name of Gru Harlem Brundtland who was the chair of the Brundtland Commission for the United Nations to produce a book, ultimately, called Our Common Future. That was in 1987. And the United Nations later gave her great kudos as being basically the sole designer of Agenda 21. Well, it just so happens that Gru Harlem Brundtland at the time was a member of the Trilateral Commission. And she fed Trilateral Commission policy directly to the United Nations, and it became known as sustainable development. So yes, it's with us today all around the world. And there's not a country on the on earth right now that you can't find elements of the United Nations working to implement sustainable development. And as you were speaking, I was looking this up on the web at sustainabledevelopment.un.org. So this is the UN website. And they have a portion if you want to see this. And I'll link out to this where this interview is located on Financial Sense as well. But it has Agenda 21 is a comprehensive plan of action to be taken globally, nationally, and locally by organizations of the UN system, governments, and major groups in every area in which human impacts on the environment. And it says that it was adopted by more than 178 governments at the UN Conference on Environment and Development held in Brazil on June 1992. And then it goes into that in full depth. So that's right off the UN website. So uh, we're not talking conspiracy theory, right? This is Agenda 21. It's fully in pursuit. And I understand that this is agenda for the 21st century, right? That's where the 21 comes into play. That's exactly right. And uh, the the shocking thing about this that is the head of climate change when the Paris Agreement took place, uh, what, three or four years ago, was a lady by the name of Christiana Figueri. She since resigned her position, but she was executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Just a direct quote from her lips. You just, you have to absorb this to contemplate. What is she really saying? She said, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we're setting ourselves a task of intentionally within a defined period of time to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the Industrial Revolution. These are fighting words. She's declared war on capitalism and free enterprise because what other economic model has been reigning for the last 150 years? There's only one. In fact, free enterprise is the only economic system the world has ever known in one way or another. But they want to replace that with sustainable development. And I have to reiterate, sustainable development is a resource-based economic system that has energy at the core. 
just like original technocracy did in the 1930s. There's very little difference between what was back in the 30s and what exists today as sustainable development. And it is absolute anathema for capitalism and free enterprise. So how does it work? How does it operate? As you said, it's, it's a resource-based economic system. Can you give us some specifics on how it would be implemented? Absolutely. The United Nations has been busy for the last 30 years anyway, accumulating physical resources on the surface of the planet and underneath the, the planet too, mineral rights and uh, you know things like in the ocean, whatever. And they basically want to take control of all of the major resources of the planet. They want to control the resources of the planet and allow you and me and other companies, whatever, rights to take or extract those resources for subcommercial activity. Uh, they believe, uh, categorically, they believe that uh, the population of the world is too needy right now. There's too many people for the resources the world has, and so therefore we're going to run out if we don't do something radically different to constrain people's consumption. And on the other hand, not only would they want to control the inputs on economic activity, but they also want to control the outputs and then uh, what you and I will actually be allowed to consume. So they set quotas for consumption. And if it's convenient for them to, uh, at least according to their scientific models, they would say, well, you're, you're allowed to use uh, 50 gallons of water a day for your human needs. That is a lot less than what most people use, by the way, per day. But if they were to say that, then that would be the deal. And you'd have to be constrained in your use of water. That's for washing clothes and taking showers and drinking and et cetera, cooking. But they created a book after the Agenda 21 meeting called the Biodiversity. It's, it's a biodiversity agreement. This book is 1,200 pages. I think it's over 1,200 pages of packed constraints that are considered sustainable. For instance, golf courses are not sustainable. They, they take up too much space and they have grass and they use up too much water. Well, a lot of people like golf courses. <laughs> you know, I live in a place where there's lots of golf courses in Arizona and uh, people would be sore displeased if somebody ripped out all the golf courses over here. But uh, ranching and farming are deemed to be unsustainable because again, they harm the earth, they harm the environment. Uh, cattle are considered evil for some reason. They want everybody to give up red meat and uh, eat other things, including insects. Uh, insects are sustainable, you see, and beef is not. That's according to them, not me. And the list just goes on and on about what they have deemed to be sustainable that you will consume. And if they could, they would just, in a very draconian fashion, just say, this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life, so just go do it. Uh, of course, there's political pressure to, uh, in the opposite direction that makes it kind of difficult for them to sell their scheme straight up. They can't just walk up to people on the street and say, I've got this great idea. Well, you want to hear it? And and people hear it. And they go, oh, well, I'd love to do that. Why? <laughs> you know, that sounds really great. They can't do it that way. They have to do it through a back door. And that's why I called my first book, Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. They've been very deceptive about their ultimate goals. Uh, it's not hidden, but it hasn't been presented very well either. And there's no transparency in the process. 
Well, it's like it's as you said. I mean, people aren't going to want to do these things naturally, right? People don't just want to eat insects or stop golfing or doing a lot of different things that are deemed inefficient or bad for the environment, right? I mean, that's why you'd have to do these things perhaps subtly over time and through some type of backdoor, which leads me to, I think, the reason why technocracy has seen such a revival, a lot of people discussing that now in the light of what we see with the coronavirus. So where does the coronavirus, the global pandemic underway right now, and the response by governments fit into technocracy? You know, I, I wrote an article a couple of weeks ago on technocracy news and trends, and I specifically went back to source where this stuff came from. I just, you know, I, I just have a suspicious mind, and so <laughs> I'm always looking for something a little bit deeper, especially as it relates to technocracy. So I wrote this article. The title of it was The Common Roots of Climate Change and COVID-19 Hysteria. And come to find out, the original statistician or computer modeler that blew the panic whistle on COVID-19 was a professor at Imperial College in London by the name of Dr. Neil Ferguson. And he is a statistician. He's not a medical professional whatsoever, but he has a PhD. And uh, actually, his PhD is in the philosophy of theoretical physics. And I don't know how that qualifies him to be a policymaker or to be, uh, you know, medical professional, whatever, to deal with a, a virus. But nevertheless, he is. And he works at Imperial College in London. He was the one that created the first model. And the solution to the problem this is the typical technocrat mind. He, he created a solution as being basically shutting down the whole economic system. And Imperial College is one of those colleges, university actually, they call it a college, it's much bigger than that, it is a full-blown university. Um, it's, it's very closely associated with the United Nations, it's a sustainable university, they say that on their website. Uh, every, every department is saturated with sustainable development thinking. And Imperial College has been one of those universities in Great Britain that has put out innumerable crazy studies on climate change, global warming saying that the seas are going to rise and the polar bears are going to die and that we're all going to be burned up alive. And so Neil Ferguson happened to be an advisor to the UK and to the United States at the same time. And he eventually came out and published his paper just a couple of weeks ago on what his findings were in his model. And he said initially that Great Britain was going to lose 500,000 people and that America was going to lose at least 1.2 million people. And that just put a, that lit a fire. Under all political leaders, they just went ballistic. Oh my gosh, that's you know that's worse than World War One. So the panic button was pushed, and then just a couple of weeks ago, now he came out and said, "Well, maybe five hundred thousand for the UK was a little aggressive. I think it's going to be more like twenty-five thousand. I hate to tell you, that's a lot of difference between five hundred thousand and twenty-five thousand. And he said, and then just more recently, he said, "Well, that might be a little bit aggressive too. Maybe it looks now like it's going to be seventy-five hundred. He did the same thing in the United States. He first he started out saying 1.2 million people, Americans are going to die. That just scares the crud out of people. And it did. And it panicked our, our leaders. And so they all implemented his policies that he had dreamed up himself. And as a result, the economic system of the world has been shut down, which leads you to think, okay, what was the original objective of the United Nations in the first place with global warming and sustainable development was to get rid of capitalism and free enterprise. 
my very strong opinion is that Imperial College carried that mandate from the United Nations. They are tightly associated with the UN as well as uh, this Neil Ferguson. He's also associated with the, with the World Health Organization. Um, their predisposition is to destroy capitalism and free enterprise. And you look at what's happened as a result of this panic. Yes, there's a virus, by the way. I know that. I'll avoid a crowd anyway. I don't want to get sick. But aside from it being the worst case of flu you ever probably had or could ever have, the narrative was hijacked on day one by people like Neil Ferguson, and they're using it for their own objectives. And at this point, the global economic system is almost in total shambles. And everybody knows it on the street. Even our political leaders sort of give mental assent to that thought. But all over the world right now, and, and I'm sure you're keenly aware of this, that the economic system of the world is an absolute shambles, financial system as well as the economic system. The supply chain's been broken, horribly broken. And if this lasts much longer, it could really spell the death knell for capitalism and free enterprise. And I hope that's not the case. That would cause untold human suffering for not only Americans, but everybody throughout the planet. So it sounds like from your point of view, and, and again, I would encourage if any of you aren't familiar with what Patrick is talking about here with Neil Ferguson, it's all over the web. You could just Google his name, Neil Ferguson, Imperial College, and you'll see many reports, articles talking about how this was the report that jarred the US and UK to action, New York Times, The Guardian, Financial Times, I mean, on and on and on, backing this up. So this this was the person, this was the institution that is named for why we're seeing such draconian lockdowns, if you want to put them that way now. And again, as you said, it's really important to point out, he said, and I was just reading that up to 2.2 um, million people in the US were going to die based on their mathematical models and 500,000 in the UK. And obviously, as you said, they've now ratcheted that down saying, oh, we were off by you know factor of 10 or whatever. <laughs> um, but it sounds like what you're saying is that is that you think that this was a bit of a, an intentional effort to say, hey, we need to do this lockdown as a means of launching a technocratic system here? Or do you think it was more of just that they were operating out of a certain mindset, which happened to be wrong? I want to say both. The predisposition to kill capitalism and free enterprise has existed now for at least 20 years at the United Nations. And Christiana Figueres finally just came out and said it. And there have been a couple of other UN leaders that have said the same thing since, but she's, she's kind of been, been my go-to poster girl. Um, <clears throat> so that predisposition is already there to scuttle our system and bring in Agenda 21. The markers that we have currently in the world Everything is circling around this green agenda, the sustainable development agenda. The stimulus money that's being spent or being prepared to spend all over the world, it's not just America, everybody's just throwing buckets of money at this. They're not throwing buckets of money to restore our former economic system. They're trying to jockey the spending to be pointed towards things like the Green New Deal, green jobs you know, green things, sustainable industry, alternative energy, things like that. And this is the heartbeat of sustainable development. This, this is not what we know as our economic system in the past 200 years. This is something altogether new that's never been tried before. And so it's, it's difficult to say for sure that a school like Imperial College, who has been dedicated to 
radical, alarmist climate change doctrine for years, now all of a sudden would be acting differently. They're not. Their MO is the same. Alarmism is the game. And they're playing it this time on the whole world. And they're getting results. And so all of the sustainable development crowd around the world are rallying at this point to this cause to say, our day in the sun has come. We need to take advantage of this. We need to get all these green deals and stuff, you know, put into, put money behind them. In the U.S. alone, probably looking at, uh, you know, two or three trillion dollars before it's done. They potentially could go towards green spending. And Europe is doing the same thing. And other countries will do the same thing as well. So, yes, there is motive. There is intent. And at the same time, you have a guy acting according to, you know, that has a mind of a technocrat. He loves numbers, data, statistics. There's no medical language in this. Neil Ferguson is an epidemiologist. And most people think, oh, that's got to be a, some kind of a highfalutin doctor that, you know, goes out and treats Ebola patients. Well, this guy doesn't have a medical degree. He has no medical qualifications whatsoever. He's a statistician. He, does, he works with statistics, modeling statistics on the computer, just like they did with global warming. So this guy's changed the course of the world. And who the heck is this guy? He's not a medical guy. He's not a politician. He's not elected. He's just there. And yet he's in control of the entire narrative. And even though he personally has dropped back his own estimates, the rest of the world has not. The World Health Organization is still using the original numbers. Isn't that surprising? Again, I want to point out, we're going to have a long list of links in the show notes section where this interview is located on our website, backing up a lot of what you're saying, Patrick, so people can reference all these materials. This will be links on your website and including uh, a lot of links from various news sources, looking at Dr. Neil Ferguson, his background, some of the numbers that were originally espoused that we would see in, in fatalities, how backed away from that. So I think it's good to, to reference all these things to know what you're saying is accurate as it is. You talked about some of the different technologies that are being pursued here, alternative energy, you know, we could talk about solar power and a number of different things, um, and even just the use of new technologies. Are you anti-green alternative technologies and technology in general? What would be your response to that? Well, no, I'm not, you know, I've never been anti-science and I've never been, you know, anti-anything really. If you got the money and you want to buy solar panels and put a windmill on your farm or whatever, I mean, I say go for it. You know, that, that's your choice. We're supposed to have freedom to do what we want to do with our own resources. And I say, fine. But technocracy does away with personal property altogether. They don't want you to have personal property. UN has said this outright, that personal property is a selfish expression of humanity and it's not good and nobody should really have the right to any property. And, you know, you look at things like alternative energy and whole area of fintech driving cash out of the system globally. These initiatives are using technology in a, in a wrongful way. They're using it to control mankind rather than to serve mankind. That's where I have a rub. I love doctors who, well, engineers and scientists for that matter, who have a servant's heart to serve humanity, to do good things for humanity. What I don't like is anybody who takes science and technology and uses it to control people and to force them, to manipulate them, to do what they want them to do. That's where I draw the line. As a scientific dictatorship, as you referred to it earlier, they believe they know better than you 
to determine what you can consume, what you can produce to try to control society and make it perhaps most efficient uh, to achieve, you know, like you said, the utopian dream, which I think every system at one point has tried. I mean, if you think about communism, socialism, uh, it's this idea of creating perfect equality, perfect fairness, and it never works out. These utopian dreams end up always having a dark side, as I think many of us understand. Speaking of technology in particular, because I'm really fascinated by some of the developments that we see that are taking place right now. And a number of things that we've been talking on our show for years now is the further implementation of biometrics, artificial intelligence, and even blockchain for uh, tracking all of the products in the global supply chain. I see a lot of moves in this direction. And it sounds like those three things in particular tie into something that you just wrote about on your website of ID2020. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, there is a, a massive global effort going on. It's not just the ID2020 program, but there's a, a massive program initiative that is being pushed by the global elite all around the world. And the idea is to create a universal ID based on blockchain that would give governments or governing entities, or well, or not really governing entities, it would give the economic entities a way to track all of the things that happen surrounding that digital ID. So if you're given a blockchain ID, every transaction you ever do will be attached to that blockchain with, your, with you with the head of it. So everything about you would be known over time, everything that you did, everywhere you went, et cetera, et cetera. The article that I posted was by my European correspondent, Jacob Nordengard, and it's called Global Digital ID Coming on the Heels of Coronavirus Panic. And if you look at the graphic at the top of this, you see just how everything migrates into this idea. You have all kinds of information technology, you have vaccination records, health records, things that you purchase, places that you travel, every conceivable thing that you do in life can be attached to your digital ID. And this is the holy grail of technocracy at this point. This is not a political system. It's an economic system, basically. And they want control of people, and this is how they're going to get it. So the global digital ID is a, a concept that's just, you know, several groups are talking about. The World Economic Forum, foundations like the Rockefeller Foundations and different big, big corporations like Accenture and Alliance and Microsoft, they're all talking about this. And in the end of it, they're going to use the pandemic to drive it because they're saying that we need a way to know who's been vaccinated and who hasn't been vaccinated. The implications is pretty scary, aren't they? If you don't take a vaccination for this coronavirus and everybody else or people around you do, but you don't, you're automatically lined up for shunning of certain services, perhaps travel, international travel, or perhaps just interstate travel. The implications are really scary that once you start this, it's a slippery slope. You can't go back. China already has a social credit scoring system, as you might be aware. Your listeners probably right. have read something about that. It's very similar. Similar, exact same concept. They're doing this in China. They've been doing it now for several years. They also are using the coronavirus to rate and rank people according to their contagion. So if you have a certain app on your phone, which is now required for anybody who gets a smartphone over there, if a little red badge pops up on your screen on your smartphone, you can't get certain travel tickets anymore and go to certain cities. You can't buy certain things. You won't get into certain, you know, venues. But if you have a green badge show up on your thing, uh, your phone, well, that means that you're a good little citizen, not infected, or you have been infected and recovered or whatever. 
and you're not a risk to society. The problem is you don't get to decide if you're a risk to society or not. They do by algorithm. And so 20% of the people that get tagged with a red tag, those poor people just have to throw up their hands and say, well, I guess that's stat. <laughs> right. I've been eliminated from the economic system. I can't participate in the economy because I haven't been approved or don't have the right permission or access. And that's basically like you're saying, it's, it's controlling society all the way down to individual freedoms and rights that we are all accustomed to, at least in the Western world, we should say. In China, that might be a, a, a different beast that we're talking about there, of course. But, you know, I, I was wondering, because this brings to mind a lot of what we saw happen with 9-11. The U.S. government just pushed through a lot of legislation that we know in hindsight led to mass surveillance of society because anyone could be a terrorist, right? A terrorist could be anywhere. So we have to have the systems in place to be able to track and detect anyone who is flagged in our system. We have to converge all of our intelligence systems as well to make sure that they can communicate with one another. There was a massive implication of surveillance, of artificial intelligence, uh, of a lot of data sharing. And we realized that, you know, there was an overreach by government in response because naturally governments overreact right? They, they're not proactive, they're reactive in nature. And that's kind of what we see, as we've discussed today with the global pandemic. Is that basically what we're looking at now is that, you know, there's this government reaction. The hope is that the legislation that's being passed right now in response is not going to pave the way to this overly intrusive system. But are we seeing that? I think we are seeing it. And I think it's not very hopeful right now that government will not do the same thing again. But it's important to see, regardless of who our political leaders are, remember I stated when we started that technocrats have a complete contempt for most politicians. And, you know, they view them as ignorant. And they're not scientific and they don't have, you know, scientific degrees to understand all the highfalutin concepts that, you know, that science does. So government politicians are easily manipulated by the scientific types. Uh, case in point, Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci standing behind President Trump with arms folded and smug looks on their face. Who's controlling the narrative? Trump himself has said, why are we shutting down our economy? And they say, because you must. And, and they get their way. Okay, he does it, and we're shut down. These technocrats have been operating behind the scenes, manipulating the political structure for their own benefit. We've seen this for decades and they're still there today, and nobody has recognized them for who they are. That's one of the reasons I'm so strong on talking about technocracy today, so people can recognize who these people are. They're not the frontline people. They're standing behind the scenes, but they have captured the flag, if you will, of public policy, and they're driving public policy. It's not the politicians we elected. It's these other people, unelected, unaccountable technocrats. We're standing behind our politicians and telling them what to do, and that's exactly what happened after 9-11, there was just a massive influx of technocrats who took over and said, well, this is how we're going to solve the problem. We're going to solve it with technology. We're going to solve it with advanced new innovation. They didn't even know what the innovation was going to be yet, honestly. They said, well, we're going to innovate, and you'll see. We'll come up with great solutions. And so we have a lot of the stuff that we complain about today was invented by these people. It wasn't government leaders. I mean, you know, George Bush and Dick Cheney, for instance, what do they know about advanced technology? They're politicians. They didn't invent that stuff. They didn't invent the scanners at the airports and setting up the TSA to, to do what they do. These were technocrats that did that. 
And they are, in my opinion, they're a clear and present danger to any political system because they don't like the political system and they, they get rid of it altogether if they could. But we're seeing the same, the same crowd, the same kind of people move forward all around the world now with the coronavirus panic. I, I call it the great panic of 2020. I want to see if we can wrap things up here with a thought that occurred to me as you were describing this. Based on an interview that we had conducted just a couple of weeks ago with another book author, she wrote a book called Hue Machine, talking about really the implementation of artificial intelligence by corporations and even by countries as well. And, you know, there's this thinking by many philosophers, tech philosophers, that we're going to see the emergence of super intelligence, as they refer to it. That could be strong AI, as many uh, may also think of it. It'd be true AI. But what she argued is that superintelligence is really an organizational network intelligence composed of both automated or autonomous systems, AI, and humans working in a collaborative fashion to achieve superintelligence. And this can occur at any level of organization that you want to look at. So we could be looking at superintelligent corporations, superintelligent government uh, bodies, for example. As we're talking about the role of technology and its implementation for the control of society, if we were to see technocracy really play out and hold the reins of society, my question to you is, could we end up seeing this, like she proposes, uh, a superintelligence that is governing the systems, the global systems, the economy, the monetary system, where it is composed of both artificial intelligence and people together using technology and science to make society as most efficient, whatever that looks, as possible? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Artificial intelligence is able or will be able in the future to accomplish just about any type of routine matter that mankind could be concerned with. It can manage, for instance, the supply chain. It can manage healthcare. It could manage transportation. It could manage your social credit score, like in China. All of these things are done now with AI behind the scenes. Facial recognition cameras, for instance, in China, just cameras on the street. But the camera pictures that it takes are fed back to an AI program that makes decisions on the people it finds, looking up all the data on those people once it finds them, and then deciding if there's anything they need to do with those people to force some type of a change back out to those people as they were in the street. Artificial intelligence has, again, some very good applications for serving mankind. But to the technocrat mind, artificial intelligence is the way to squeeze out maximum efficiency out of any system and also to control that system in a, such a micromanaged way that you can't get any more granular. And I think this is the biggest risk right now. And, you know, one of the requirements that technocracy wrote and back in 1934, they wrote down only seven requirements, really, to make the whole system work. Requirement number six states, provide specific registration of the consumption of each individual, plus a record and description of the individual. That's simple. They couldn't do it with pencil and paper, but they were visionaries and they saw the future of technology. There'd be a time when this could happen. And we have that kind of technology now that can surveil and can pick up all this information where the system knows more about you than you know about yourself. The problem is, of course, when AI starts to make decisions for you that you would not have otherwise made for yourself. And there's lots of examples on abuses of this system right now. I'm thinking... <laughs> 
I'm thinking of some poor guy that was riding a bicycle in front of a elderly lady's house who was mugged. Somebody broke into her house and police department went after Google and forced them to give up location data on anybody who was happened to be in close proximity to that house at the time of the crime. This guy was coughed up, if you will, by Google. He said, yep, so-and-so was there. Police went out and picked him up. He said, well, you're the only one that Google showed as being close. He's, well, I had my cell phone with me, and Google tracked him. And the police went after Google and got the location data. Well, stuff like that happens. He said, oh, that's just, you know, that's too bad. But hopefully it won't happen to you. So anyway, it's a mixed bag on AI right now. AI has the potential to, to be a great help to mankind in some ways. But in the hands of the wrong people now, and there are a lot of wrong people using this stuff, it can become an absolute killer technology. Well, I think that that was the, the key point right there, is that any technology, whether it's AI or otherwise, or even if it's a, a human-created system like a government, if it thinks that society is meant to serve it versus it serving the needs of society, then it's not running the way it's intended. And then at that point, that's when you see the abuse of a lot of the technologies that are in place, the rules that are in place, where people, especially personal freedom or personal liberties, end up being eroded at the cost of the continual growth of that system that's in place. And that's unfortunately the danger, I think, given our discussion, that if technocracy is left unchecked, that we will see loss of privacy mass surveillance, population control, and the loss of individual freedom as these scientific dictators decide what it is that you can buy, what can be produced. And they try to do this almost by applying an optimization procedure, calculating on society how it needs to run most efficiently. And that's going to be using, again, like we said, the three things, biometrics, blockchain, and AI all together uh, for achieving these things. That's exactly right. And I would I would also encourage people to think when they're thinking about supply chain, that, that's the buzzword today. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with what that means. You are part of the supply chain, not by your choice, but you are, whether you like it or not, you are part of the, the global chain that these technocrats have set up. You're just the end, you're kind of the end of the chain. So all of the things that they're doing with the global supply chain, all these things are coming to it. Here are the ultimate consumers. And this just underscores the fact that this is an economic in nature. It's not a political system. It's an economic system they're setting up. The big difference. In fact, they believed, even back in the 1930s, that they did not need a political system. They just want to do away with it altogether. Let's get straight to the economic management part. And so they didn't see any need for politicians. And I think a lot of them still feel the same way today. Yeah. Well, Patrick, it's such a fascinating discussion here on technocracy and its historical origins. Again, I know that you've written extensively on this through numerous books on your website. So with that said, would you mind telling our audience how they can follow more of your work? Absolutely. I'd, I'd encourage people to go to technocracy.news and they'll find everything they need to know. Get on the mailing list and follow along. And I have a quick start page if you've never been exposed to this before, on the quick start guide and get lots of information. And at the bottom of the homepage, I posted uh, 12 articles I did late last year, kind of fundamental basics of technocracy. And uh, you can go and 
read through those 12 as well. They're, they're very informative, kind of give you a very quick grounding. And then I'd encourage people to buy my books, one or one or the other or both, and really get grounded in what technocracy is all about. They're available on my website as well as on amazon.com. Amazon has a Kindle version, and there's also an audiobook version of my latest book, Technocracy, The Hard Road to World Order. So if people like to listen, they can just get the, get the audio book and they can start listening right away. Perfect. Well, Patrick, thanks again for coming onto our show. It was a pleasure speaking with you about this subject. And again, I want to encourage all of our audience to go to technocracy.news where you can find all of that information. Patrick, it was a pleasure. We look forward to speaking with you again. Likewise, Chris, anytime. So once again, that was Patrick Wood at technocracy.news, author of multiple books on technocracy. We'll have a long list of links that you can access in the show notes section where this interview is located on Financial Sense. I know we covered a lot of ground in today's interview, so if you have any questions or feedback or suggestions, feel free to email me at cris at financialsense.com. As always, tell your friends and family about FS Insider, the wide range of different guests and topics we discuss on our show including book authors, leading investment strategists, and some outside-of-the-box material like we discussed today with Patrick Wood. For FS Insider, I'm Chris Sheridan. Thanks for listening. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company. Companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.